And as we prepare to look at our text today from Luke chapter 6, I'm going to give you a challenge up front, okay? Because let me just go ahead and say it. We're going to cover really a lot of territory this morning. Uh, more territory, really, than we have time. I could take what we're covering today, and I could probably uh, spend three or four or five weeks preaching what we're going to cover today. And so I'm going to give you a challenge, because really what I'm considering what I'm doing today is really giving you an outline or an introduction. And so what's going to be required of you is spending time letting God's Word speak to you as you take a deeper look into what we're going to touch on this morning. Now, here's the good news for those who are following our reading plan that we have provided for you. For the next three days, you'll be reading in Luke chapter 6. And what that's going to do is give you an opportunity to truly meditate on these verses and let God speak to your heart. Again, there's so much here in these chapters that no matter who you are, these words will convict you, they will challenge you, and hopefully it'll change you. I know this week as I studied and prepared, I personally realized how much I need the words in chapter 6. I realized how much I have to consider are these things true in my life. Now, as we begin, we're actually going to start at the end. And so let's look at verses first this morning, verses 46 through 49. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, as I read these words of Jesus, I find both a great challenge and then I find a great encouragement. Because if we were back up again to verse 20, we can see where the words of Jesus are spoken. At this point, like I said a while ago, they're spoken to his disciples. And when I say disciples, it's not just the 12. Because verse 17 states that there was a large crowd of his disciples that were with him. And so he is speaking here to all of those who, at this point, claim to be followers of Jesus. And as he spoke to them, when he got to verse 46, it's as if he had a very pointed question for those who claim to follow him. And this is what he said. Let's look at it again, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? From this statement, Jesus is recognizing that there are those who call him Lord. In other words, they claim to follow him, and by saying that he is Lord, claim to believe that he has the right to direct their lives in every way. Because when you say Lord, you do understand the Lord is the one who is in control and therefore has the right to dictate your actions, right? All right, every action. However, Jesus says about this group that though they call him Lord, they do not do what he tells them. For Jesus, this reality was a contradiction that should not have existed. And folks, let me go ahead and say this. It's a contradiction that should not exist in our day today. However, my observation in our day is that this problem is still prevalent among those who claim to follow Jesus. So many people say they love God and, and say that Jesus is even their Lord. But when you look at their lives, there seems to be this disconnect. The way that their lives are lived or anything but lies that reflect what Jesus taught or what he commanded us to do. That leads me today as we get started to give you this focal point because this really is what you have to consider today, right? That if you call Jesus Lord, then you are called to do what he says. You see, there should not be an option in anyone's life who claims to be a Christian as to whether you do what Jesus commanded or taught. Yet again, so many choose to not do what Jesus said. I hope you noticed as we read the difference in the lives of those who do what Jesus says versus those who don't. Those who do what Jesus said are building their lives on firm foundation. 
Therefore, when the difficulties and storms of life come, they are able to stand firm. On the other hand, for those who do not do the Lord's wills, they have built their lives on shaky ground. Therefore, when the difficulties and storms of life come, their lives come to ruin. You can be sure there is a difference in the lives of those who obey the Lord versus those who do not. Now, briefly, let me make a clarification so you're not confused this morning. I don't want anyone to hear what I'm going to say today and believe that it is what you do that provides salvation for your soul. You are powerless to save yourself. What you've already established in Luke and will continue to see as we make our way through the gospel is that our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. He was and is the only means by which we can be forgiven and be made right with God. A person's faith in Jesus is the mean by which one is granted righteousness by God as Jesus' death provided the payment for your sin. In fact, in light of what we've already said this morning, Romans 10, 9 is a good place to rem be reminded of this fact because there it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, that verse is explicit. If you confess Jesus is Lord and you truly believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is about a faith in Jesus and a commitment of your life to him. And so as we look at this main point that says that if you call Jesus Lord, you should do what he says. It is really about living out the relationship you claim to have. Your actions will not make you a Christian, but your actions can show that you are a Christian. In fact, it is what led James to say this in James 2, 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's right. A faith in Jesus will lead to actions that show it. And so what is it that Jesus said you should do? What are some of the things that brings this firm foundation to your life? Well, in chapter six, we can get what I'm saying this morning is an outline. And here's what he tells us to do. First, he says, let Jesus be the standard. All right. In the first part of chapter six, we see two encounter that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day. Now, both of these encounters happened on the Sabbath day. All right, we wouldn't want to say Sunday, but this is a different day. But so it happened on the Sabbath day. So let's look briefly at this first one. It said, on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is lawful to do on the Sabbath? You see, here is Jesus traveling with his disciples and let's remember, Jesus had no place to call his home. And when his disciples came and followed him, they had left everything that they had. And so here was Jesus and his disciples having nothing. As they were traveling around, they got hungry. And God had made a provision in his law to take care of those who had nothing. That law said that those who were landowners who raised their crops, they were required by God to leave the outer portion of the land unplowed so that the poor could come and eat from it. Therefore, what Jesus and the disciples were doing here in these verses by eating this grain was not wrong. It was part of God's provision. However, the Pharisees accused them of breaking the Sabbath by working because of this. When they plucked those grains, they rubbed them in their hands. And by rubbing them in their hands to harvest them, the Pharisees said that they were working on the Sabbath. Therefore, they were not pleasing to God. Now, from my studies, folks, this was a man-made law, not God's law. The Pharisees had taken God's Sabbath law and they had multiplied and added their own additional requirements for a person to be considered honoring the Sabbath. And let me go ahead and say this. It still continues today. 
In fact, Sean came across an article from just 1992, not that long ago, where a fire broke out in an apartment in Jerusalem, and they went to the rabbi to say, is it okay for us to call the emergency people to come and take care of the fire? Because they knew if they picked up the phone, it would break the circuit, and that was considered working. It took them 30 minutes to debate where it was okay to call the fire department when the rabbi finally said, well, it's okay. And 30 minutes later, two other apartments had already caught on fire. You see, they had made their own standards for living. And the Pharisees in Jesus' day had taken God's law of the Sabbath and they'd added their own standard that says, this is what it really means to hold to the Sabbath. And for, G- for these Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples were not living out the standard. The next encounter, which I will not read, starts in verse 6. And this time, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Once again, the Pharisees, along with the teachers of the law, charged Jesus with breaking the Sabbath because they had created this law which said that one could not heal on the Sabbath. They considered it practicing medicine, and so this would be against the law of practicing one's profession on the Sabbath. According to these religious standards, leader standards, by healing a man, Jesus was working on the Sabbath and not honoring God. Now, I love Jesus' response to them in verse 9 where he just simply said this, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy? I always love reading Jesus' response in the Gospels to those who opposed him, mostly because he always made them look silly when they thought they were so smart, or he made them look so ungodly when they thought they were so godly. For Jesus to ask this question to the religious leaders, they no doubt had to get angry because they realized that they were caught in an awkward situation. They had just accused Jesus of wrong, but how were they to call doing good or saving a life wrong? Really, what these religious leaders were proving was that they had the wrong standard. And Jesus gives us the right standard when he said this in verse 5. He said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is trying to tell them this. Guys, let me just tell you, I am the standard. I am the standard. As Lord, Jesus, hear me, as Lord, Jesus had actually created the Sabbath. In fact, he later is going to tell us that God created the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath, all right? And here's what these Pharisees were proving, that their standard was a religion instead of a relationship with the living God. Here was actually God in the flesh in their presence, yet they could not recognize him because they had the wrong standard. And let's not be quick to condemn them because... Don't we have the same problem? We often fail to let Jesus be the standard of our lives because actually, who do we want to be the standard? Us, that's right. We want to be our own standard. Actually, we want to, to be that standard. And so Christians today, too, are guilty of letting religion be their standard. And how do I know that? Because I constantly see Christians criticize, try to discredit, even destroy other Christians simply because they do not see everything exactly the way they do. So many Christians today cannot fathom the idea that they might be wrong about something. And because Jesus isn't the standard, we often build our own standards of what it means to be right and wrong and often destroy the name of Jesus because of the way we treat others who claim his name. I see this on Twitter all the time. I mean, I mostly follow religious people and religious leaders, and I constantly see others trying to destroy or discredit them because they have a difference of opinion on a non-essential matter. I'm going to go ahead and say we have many Pharisees in our day and time. I want to encourage every believer to make Jesus the standard for your life. That means there are some things that are essential that we have to believe. We have to believe that there is only one way to salvation, and that's through Jesus. We have to believe that his word is the guide for our life, and all things that are clearly spoken on there should be followed. 
However, what we also have to do is show grace so that on the things that may not be clear or that may not be essential, we don't make them stumbling blocks that prevent us from having shared ministry with others and proclaiming the name of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Can I go ahead and say this? The world is not attracted to a faith where fellow believers are always fighting. To a religion full of Pharisees. And yet, because we have made our standards the most important standard, the world is watching believers fight, and the name of Jesus is being discredited. And I believe this. If we truly make Jesus the standard in our life, it'd stop. But because we haven't made Jesus the standard, we still find ourselves fighting with one another. Now, if Jesus is a standard, the next thing he teaches us to do is this, to lead the life of a disciple. In verse 12, we see where Jesus, after praying, called disciples, and he chose 12 that he named apostles. Then in verse 17, we see Jesus come with those apostles and begin ministering to a crowd of disciples along with a great multitude of people. I briefly want to say this about leading the life of a disciple because it ties into what I was just saying. To lead the life of a disciple means to join forces with a great variety of people even many much different than you. If we were to go back even here in Luke 6 and see the disciples that are listed, here's what you're going to see, great variety. For example, there were those who had been considered outspoken opponents of the current Roman government. And then there would be those who are sympathetic to the Roman government. You see those who are very brash in what they do. And then you see those who seem to have a doubting spirit as the normal thing of their life. One of the great things about leading the life of a disciple is being able to join forces with those much different than yourself and still being able to work for the cause of God. I've always been amazed that Jesus can even bring Kentucky fans and Louisville fans together for his cause. Right? And I'm even going to say this. All right? I even believe. Here, I'm going to make a bold statement this morning. Ready? I even believe it's possible for Jesus to bring Democrats and Republicans together. Why? Hear me. Why? Because true disciples do what we said a few moments ago. They make Jesus the standard. The standard include living life together, ministering to each other's needs. And when Jesus in the standard, it even means though you don't agree on everything, you can still love each other and can serve alongside each other. Also, as I think about Jesus and his disciples, I'm challenged by Jesus' call to make the disciples. And if you look at how Jesus made disciples, it wasn't about a class. You know, here's what we often think about discipleship. It means this. I take a class where I learn something, and then I'm a, I'm a disciple, right? That's what we teach. Well, well, that's not what we see here. You see, genuine discipleship involves living life together, doing ministry together, using life experiences to teach. Jesus and the disciples truly lived life together. They truly ministered to others. And as they lived life together, Jesus taught. And when the disciples came across an issue they couldn't deal with, Jesus used those opportunities to teach. And as the disciples listened to Jesus teach and watch what he did, they learned what it meant to be a true follower of his. Now, this tells me that if we're going to lead the life of a disciple, first of all, we need to be spending time with Jesus. It means that we need to be praying. We need to be reading his word, ministering to others in his name. And as we do those things, we should constantly be letting Jesus teach us right? But then if you are leading the life of a disciple, it means this, you're also investing in others. 
It means you're taking the time to invest in helping someone else learn who Jesus is and how to live for him. In fact, here's what the church probably needs to do. The church probably needs to repent that we've had the wrong idea of discipleship. Again, as I said a while ago, we've taught that it is a class rather than a lifestyle. And we should get to the point where we help people understand that discipleship truly is about investing in lives of other people, which means much time and deep investments. Christians truly need to reconsider their view of what discipleship is. Now, as we reconsider our view of discipleship, we need to see where Jesus also lets us know that leading the life of a disciple looks extremely different than life apart from him. Actually, it often looks opposite of a life lived apart from him and how we often seek to live. Look at these verses from verses 20 through 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, if I were to ask you, which life would you want to live or which life are you pursuing? Would it be the life described in verses 20 through 23 or 24 through 26? If we're going to be honest this morning, all right, our response would most likely not be verses 24 through 20. We want the life in the first few verses, right? Because we are seeking the rich life, not the poor life. We are seeking the life of being full, not hungry. We are seeking the life of laughing, not weeping. We are seeking the life of being liked, not being hated and excluded. Let's think seriously about this. I mean, I mean, so many people feel like following Jesus means that when they follow Jesus, they enter into a life of comfort. But that's not the case. Following Jesus means entering into a relationship with him. It is gaining the assurance, yes, of one day heaven is yours. It is gaining the assurance that eternal life is even yours in the here and now. But following Jesus means going where Jesus leads you. It means following his example. And let's remember this. Jesus gave up heaven to come and to be your savior. He gave up heaven to come and be the savior of the world. It wasn't an easy life he chose. He even came to earth, we're told, as I mentioned earlier, he didn't have a place to lay his head. Even remember this, he was born in a stable, right? He didn't choose a life of ease. What Jesus calls you to is a life that pursues his will above all, even if it means this, that you suffer for doing so. It is to say you choose not a life of ease, but a life of sacrifice. It means you choose not a life of being self-consumed, but a life that is broken over the needs of the world around you. A life that mourns when you see the brokenness in the world, when you see the hurt and the suffering that exists everywhere you look, and you weep because you see the hurting people in the world. Now, as I say that, I I know this is, is that not most of us, most believers today will not live what we consider a poor, destitute lives. And I'm not sure that's really what God's calling us to do. However, Jesus is truly calling us to live lives that are not self-consumed, but instead live lives that are pursuing his agenda and choosing and pursuing him. That will mean at times you sacrifice for his kingdom rather than consuming for your pleasure. It means that you'll get involved at times in heartbreaking situations rather than turning a blind eye because you don't want to get involved. 
It means at times you will give up what you want to meet the need of another because you have plenty and they have a need. It also means at times you will do the right thing and stand for what is right, even when it means you get ridiculed. And people say ugly things about you, even say untrue things about you, exclude you because you have a love for Jesus. This is what it means at times to live the life of a disciple. Leading a difficult life should not be a surprise for a disciple of Jesus Christ because Jesus even said this in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world does what? Hate you. You may not like to hear this, but let's remember Jesus made something very clear. If you lead the life of a disciple on this earth, and it costs you great suffering. Great is your reward in heaven. You can be assured if you have to suffer hunger in the world, you will be filled someday. That if you weep and mourn, you will someday laugh. If you are excluded, be sure the Lord is ready to receive you. And don't forget, on the other hand, if you choose to, to lead, uh, lead not the life of a disciple, but instead to live a life for yourself, you become rich. If you become rich now, you've already got your reward. If you choose to seek to be full in this world, there is a day coming when you be hungry. If you seek pleasure and laugh now, there is a day of mourning on the horizon. If you live so that everyone likes you, you might need to consider, do you really belong to God? Because it was the false prophets in the past that was always well spoken of. I hope you see what Jesus is teaching. He is saying leading the life of a disciple often looks different than what the world tells you to pursue. Now, here's what I know. This will not attract large crowds to the church. Right? I know that. But you need to know the truth of what it means to follow Jesus. Leading the life of a disciple is not easy. It can be costly. It will look towards rewards in heaven, not on earth. And it will look to the needs of others, which reminds us that when you lead the life of a disciple, just like we just described, you will love in a radical way. In fact, if I were to try to describe in one word what Jesus wants us to do, that word that I would use would be love. Now, here's what I know. You can misunderstand what that means. You can even misapply how to love as Jesus demands. But what cannot be denied is that Jesus calls us to love in a radical way. Now, we won't go into this really this morning, but loving the way Jesus wants does first start with loving God. But this morning, let's assume that calling Jesus Lord means you understand that you are called to love God first and above all. If that is so, then you need to understand that loving God is followed by a radical love for others. How radical? Well, let's look at what Jesus said beginning in verse 27. But I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. I mentioned earlier that we have a hard time loving those who claim to be other believers. So surely we don't want to hear these words of Jesus, right? If we struggle to love others who claim to love of Jesus, how can we love our enemies? But that is what following Jesus and obeying him and obeying his word demands. You love your enemies. You do good to those who hate you. You bless those who curse you. You pray for those who abuse you. That's radical. Is it not? There are many reasons the Lord most likely tells us to do this. For example, if you don't love this way, then what happens is your life gets eaten up with hatred and bitterness. 
And until you learn to give your hatred to the Lord, you can never live in joy and peace that you long for. But let's, from a disciple standpoint, consider this. Many of the people who themselves need to come into a relationship with the living God are people who in the moment would be enemies of believers. And how can believers help people come to know the love of God if they don't first show the love of God? It's impossible. And if you are a believer, you are called to love in such a way that even those who hate you couldn't argue with the way you love. This includes what I'm going to say, which is loving others appropriately starts by seeking to understand them. The next section in Luke 6 gets much attention even in the secular world. They are often misapplied verses, but listen to what Jesus said. He said, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now let me go ahead and say this. A misapplication is saying that we never judge what someone does as right or wrong. Okay? In fact, in just a few more verses, it talks about taking the speck out of someone else's eye. We do occasionally judge what someone doing is right or wrong, do we not? Okay? That's not what this is saying. But what we have to be careful about is judging someone before we know the truth of what is going on and even understanding why they are the way they are and why they are doing what they are doing or even why they believe why they believe. Sometimes if we will take the time to understand someone, we can gain a sympathetic heart even when we do not agree with what they do. But understanding people helps you as you seek to minister to them, love them, and help them come to know the love of God. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, various times he even had encountered with people blatant sin. Once there was a woman caught in adultery, and those folks who called her in the very act of adultery brought her to Jesus. And in that moment, they, they were wanting to, to go by the law. They wanted her, him to stone her to death because she was guilty of adultery. But what did Jesus do in that moment? He looked back at them and he said this. He said, you are without sin, you cast the first stone. Of course, there were no takers on that. And so one by one, they all left until it was just Jesus and the woman left alone. And some people want to look and say, well, Jesus overlooked her sin. No, Jesus didn't overlook her sin. Jesus looked at the woman and said, go and sin no more. There was another occasion that Jesus met a woman who also was caught in sin. This time she was a woman who had already had five husbands and was living with potential number six. This time her punishment was severe that it was isolation. Nobody wanted to be around her because of the life that she lived. But Jesus met her alone at a well one day. And what did he do? He began to speak to her. And he spoke to her to the point that he got to the root of the problem, that she needed living water. And what happened that day? That this woman left changed. And Jesus didn't look over her sin. He is even the one who mentioned her sin to her. But he did it in such a way that she was not repulsed and instead received the words Jesus had. And what Jesus demonstrated was the need we all have is this, is to understand those who have sin in their life so that we can help them deal with their deeper need of coming to know Jesus as the Lord of their life. Coming to know the one who can change them. This kind of radical love also means this. You love others enough to let judgment begin with your own life. Look what Jesus says in verse 42 and following. What can you say to your brother? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eyes. Now, you might not see this as loving others, but let's be clear. If you truly start with judging your own life, 
It makes a huge difference in how you judge and treat others because once you see the sin that is on in your own life, you find a greater compassion for those who are struggling with sin. Because when you judge your own life first, you recognize this, that, that you and those that you might consider sinners are really in the same boat. You both need Jesus as Lord. And when you see this commonality, it changes the way that you love those around you. After Jesus teaches this important lesson on self-reflection, he then goes on to say this, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Which really leads me to this important question. Does the fruit of your life show that Jesus is Lord? We are really even brought to a place of self-reflection because it is right after this where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And it's a question that you must answer. You have to consider this morning, is Jesus the standard of your life or is it something else? Are you leading the life of a disciple or are you loving with a radical love? Truly to answer all three with a yes is a place that many find hard to get to, even believers, because remember Jesus asked this question to those who are supposedly his followers. He said, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? He wasn't talking to unbelievers. He was talking to people who claimed that he was Lord. And so what I want everyone here this morning to do is ponder the question. Does the fruit of your life say that Jesus is Lord? Now, here's what happens this morning. We come to a place to where we have an invitation. And you do understand there's many churches today that don't offer invitations anymore, right? We still do. Why? Because I happen to believe this. If you hear the word of the Lord, then there should be an opportunity to respond in one way or the other. And my question for you today is this. You've heard even the question. You saw the text. The question is, does your, the fruit of your life say, truly, Jesus is Lord? Is he the standard of your life? Or are you your own standard. T -t Today, this morning, would you, would you look and say you're leading the life of a disciple? Are, are you self-consumed or are you looking saying, look, no, it's not about me. And, and if I have to, 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 to do without for somebody else, I'm willing to do that. If I, somebody has to say bad of me for me to stand for right, I'm willing to do that. Are, are you living the life of a disciple this morning or is it about your comfort today? And even today, are you willing to bring somebody else along and say, listen, I want to help you know what it means to follow Jesus. You come along and we'll walk with the Lord. Together, we're going to learn because I ain't got it all figured out and you ain't. Let's figure this out together. Amen. Are you leading that life? Are you loving in a radical way today? I know what's been called to do today is not easy, but can I remind you of something? This is not what I've asked you to do. These words today were the words of the Lord. Right? Right? I've just pointed you right to Scripture. These are things that Jesus said from his mouth. It wasn't what I've said from my mouth. He is the one who set the standard. He is the one that's called us to live that way. And I know, again, I could preach about 8, 10, 20 more sermons on this text. I get it. But my guess, if we just take that and read it and ponder it, there's enough this morning for God to convict every heart here this morning. Yes? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have an invitation. And for some of you this morning, you have never given your heart to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And today is the day that you can come and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you can be saved. 
You can confess your sin this morning. I'm, I'm here ready to tell you right here this morning, Jesus is ready to forgive you and he's ready to give you a new life. If you've never made him Lord, today is the day you can do that. But let me remind you, these words were words to his disciples. And Jesus looked back at him and said, why, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? This invitation is also an invitation to everyone who claims to be a believer, everyone who would say that Jesus is Lord, for you to ask yourself the question, am I doing what he says? And maybe this morning, here's what is required of you. Maybe there's something that you've been doing that's wrong. Maybe you need to come and confess that. Well, why not come to this altar and kneel? God's ready to hear from you, his disciple, to say, Lord, I've messed up. I need your forgiveness. And he's ready to cleanse you fresh and anew this morning. Why don't you come and say, God, I've not been doing what you wanted me to do. Or maybe it's even to come this morning and say, Lord, I've heard what your word says, and it's tough. I find it hard to love my enemies. I find it hard to pray for those that, 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 that hate me. I find it hard to be okay when people speak bad against me. And why not even kneel and say, Lord, give me the strength to do what you say today, because it's hard. But I want to be yours, and I want the fruit of my life to proclaim that I am yours. And so why not come this morning and say, God, give me the strength to walk with you this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we bow into your presence this morning. Once again, just coming, being convicted by your word. And Father, I know throughout the week, Lord, as I studied, Lord, just a conviction that would come to my own life to say, am I doing this? Am I, am I loving this way? I'm thankful, Father, that you're a God who is gracious, loving, whose mercies are new every morning. And so that even when your believers fail, you're ready, Father, for them to come and say, forgive me. And you're ready to restore once again and help them to walk with you. My prayer would be, Father, that all who claim your name today would be walking in your love, that the fruit of our life would truly say that you're Lord. And so tonight, if it's not there, Lord, or this morning, if it's not there, I pray that today, Father, you would show us, show us that place in our heart that's not walking in accordance to your will. And let today be the day we make a commitment to not only say that you're Lord, but live in a way that shows you're the Lord of our life. Bless this invitation, I pray, God. I know you want to speak to heart, so have your way this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.